Hello there. Good morning. My name is Thomas. One of your pastors here, and uh, you're gonna. I'm going to say, children. Thanks for learning with us so far. You're gonna go learn a different room. Uh, great. Well, it's Christmas week. All right. Is everyone feeling cheerful? Yes. Great. So glad to hear that. I know I am. Um, this is a fun Sunday. I kind of like this Sunday. It's the Sunday right before Christmas, and we're just, just I think like Lynn said, just sort of it's time to bring our hearts to the Lord sort of one last time together before we celebrate Christmas. And, of course, we'll be back here in a few days and all that, but uh, so many of us, you know, this feels like sort of the week where the rhythm of your life changes as you begin for a holiday, and it's a, it's a moment where we're doing something with our souls together, and it's just a, a right time for us to think about that together. So, anyway, I'm excited. So we're going to be in Micah. The passage was read wonderfully, by the way, up here, but in Micah 5. Now, uh, so you can turn there in your Bible. This week, I know a lot of us, hopefully all of us, will be opening a Christmas present or two. And I was just this week sort of thinking back on my uh, younger years and all the excitement of Christmas and what, you know, what I remember sort of enjoying the most. And I remember a few times getting presents where I opened it and I thought, Thanks, Mom. What is it? <laughs> I don't know if you've never, ever had a moment like that where you got a gift, you weren't quite sure what it was. Uh, the, mo- the most recent occurrence of that was when we had our baby shower for our first son. Katie came home and she said, hey, we got this gift. It's really important. It's going to be a huge help for us. It's going to bring peace to our household, basically. And then she showed it to me. And I said, wonderful. What is it? Maybe you guys are wondering what it is. Do you know what this is? Some of you do. The parents probably do. Okay. Well, it used to be you'd have a little bulb that you'd, you know, for... Here's what you do with this. This end goes in your mouth, and this one gets all the snot out of your baby's nose. You guys sort of understand? Okay. I opened this. I said, it's great. What is it? How, what do I do with it? Why is this actually important? How do I actually make use of it? How does it actually bring about peace in our household? Well, uh, I think probably many of us, most of us, at this point, hopefully you guys have heard it well enough... God has given us the gift of peace, the gift of peace, peace on earth, goodwill to men. God, Jesus is the prince of peace. Um, it's sort of a mega theme in the Bible, peace, and it's a peace we're, that we're talking about this week. But it might feel a little bit like this did for me. I know uh, it's supposed to be wonderful. It's supposed to be great. It's important. It's valuable. But I'm not sure how to use it. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. And um, can you help me out? Well, that's what we want to do today. Micah 5 was given to us to answer questions just like that. What is God's peace? Why do I need it or why do I lack it? And uh, how do I actually have it? So I'm going to read the passage for us again just to sort of get it back into our minds. And then away we go. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. 
How can we have peace? Well, to answer that question, we need to learn three lessons that this passage teaches us. Firstly, what is peace? Secondly, why do we lack peace? And finally, how can we find peace? But first, let's, let's pray that the Lord would teach us these things. Can you pray with me? Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet in dark times. It teaches us to be wise in the world you created. It trains us to live righteously. It commands us. It calls us, encourages us. Lord, help us to receive all of these from your mouth today. Help me to say the things you are saying to your people and nothing more and nothing less. Finally, your word teaches us your character, which we see most fully in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us today to see Jesus, to cherish Jesus, to honor Jesus. Lord, make Jesus more, give Jesus a greater gravity to us, his name, his work, what he has done to accomplish peace, greater than when we walked in here. Above all, Lord God, honor your name among us as we work to obey your command to help everyone learn Christ for, the, for his glory on earth, we pray. Amen. So peace. What is peace? The first thing we need to know if we're going to actually enjoy this gift that God has given us, what is peace? Well, first, uh, it's hard to sort of parachute into one of these minor prophets here, Micah. Um, so first, I want to give you just a little bit of background so we can understand this, the situation that this uh, this wonderful passage was written into. So Micah is a prophet. A uh, prophet, we often, when you hear the word a prophet, you think of someone who sees the future, sees way down the line hundreds of years in the century or something, uh, in centuries, something like that. But most often, prophets were just people who spoke for God to people in their time, saying things that God had given them to speak. And so Micah was a prophet. Of course, we see here, perhaps most obviously, that he did see the future. He did see what was coming. He saw future peace that was coming through Jesus, but we'll get to that. But Micah delivered this message. These very words that we're reading in the whole book of Micah were delivered by Micah uh, in sometime in the ninth century before Christ uh, at the temple in Jerusalem to the whole nation of Israel. Um, you can imagine them sort of coming to the temple to worship, coming to, you know, going to church, basically, walking in, and there's Micah, and there's a word from the Lord. Um, and it's not good news. Uh, we see if you just, an easy way to do this is if you just sort of flip to the left to the start of Micah, you can just look at the section headings if your Bible has those. They're not, you know, part of the Bible, but they're helpful to orient you. Micah chapter one, the coming destruction. God says, uh, destruction is coming. Why? Chapters two and three tell us. Woe to the oppressors. Chapter three, rulers and prophets denounced. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 1. I said, hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. This is Micah in the temple. Can you imagine that? Pretty brave, okay? I gotta say it. Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Yikes. Uh, this, now, he's not talking about literal cannibalism as far as, far as we know. He's saying uh, from the bottom to the top, Israel had become a place where there was no justice, there was inequality all around, the wealthy and powerful were oppressing uh, the people who, there's one line where it says, because it was in their hand to do it. 
in chapter 2. Why did they do it? They could. Um, and the, the rot in their society went from the bottom all the way to the top. You hear this, the way it talks about the leaders who just, they see their people as an opportunity to feed themselves. Everything was upside down. And so, because of the wickedness of their nation, God is coming to discipline them. He's coming in judgment. And God's discipline would come in the form of exile. Um, exile is a big theme, you know, in the, throughout the Old Testament, the, the people of God went through exile. And you're probably familiar with the fact that exile meant they left. They were taken away from the land of Israel, the promised land. You remember in Deuteronomy, we were so excited about God's people coming into the promised land and another chance to, to do what God had called them to do. Well, now exile means they're being taken out. They're taken away. Um, but exile is not a magic wand that God waves over his people and they just find themselves in Assyria or in Babylon or whatever. Uh, exile happens because you went to war, there's an invading army, and you lost. You're overwhelmed by their military force and you surrendered, your cities were conquered, and they rounded up all of your family, your children, everyone, and said, get out of here, we're dislocating you. You're moving. So, imagine the comfortable Israelites showing up at the temple, just maybe kind of like you did today, to get some good music, uplifting message maybe, and instead, there's Micah, He's going to be preaching the sermon today, <laughs> and in, instead of what you thought you were going to hear, um, he turns up, he calls out their sin, and says, someday soon the Babylonians are going to be on your doorstep to make war against you. God will not be with you. You will lose, and you'll be carried off to a land you do not know. If you're an Israelite, <laughs> as you hear the words that we just heard from Micah, what are you hoping for above all else? Peace. Peace. Please let there not be war. Please let there not be, let us not be conquered. Let the let the Babylonians not show up. Let the Assyrians not show up to overtake us. Please, Lord, give us peace. We are desperate for peace. Of course, what they meant by peace was no war. Now that's the context in which we read our passage today. Yes, it's telling us about the coming Messiah, but we have to understand the way that the original passage is not just a Christmas passage. It's a passage written to the people in this time, uh, God's word for God's people to learn from about what kind of peace they really needed. Um, and the lesson that they needed then is probably the same one that we need now, that God's peace is probably not what you were expecting. Probably not what you were expecting. If you were, like I said, if you were the people in Micah's time, 800 BC, under the threat of war, under the threat of God's judgment and discipline, you want peace? And then you read this. A, a ruler is coming. When? When, Micah? I, well, a ruler is coming. I'm not sure when. He's sort of the shadowy figure. Um, he's from of old. He's from ancient of days. Um, there's a woman in labor giving birth. We don't... They don't know about Mary, guys. It's not just Mary, did you know? They do not know. Uh, and then the, his brother shall return, so it's something about a future restoration is coming. He'll stand and shepherd his flock. That's one of the prevalent Old Testament, Testament metaphors that God uses for his relationship with his people. Peace, uh, we want peace. Well, he says, he shall be their peace. I just wanted to avoid a war. What are you, what are you talking about? 
clearly God defines peace differently than they did. And one of the key lessons that they needed to learn and that we need to learn today is to let God define the terms. It would be dangerous for us to use the word peace and to read the word peace and have our own definition while God has his own definition and think that we're saying the same thing. Uh, I remember this was, I don't know if you guys have sort of stories in your family that have just become sort of part of the just sort of fun, sarcastic little life of your family over the years, your family lore. But one of my favorites in our family was the time when my grandpa sent my uncle, this was, had to be 60 years ago probably at this point, sent my uncle out to fill up the family car, uh, you know, fueled up, gas it up, you know. And so we sent him out and I think he was just about driving age, he was 15 or 16. Um, and he, he went to the gas station, he had given him money, and he went up to the gas station, and he said, which one should I get? And one of them was cheaper than the other one, this isn't true anymore, but one of them was cheaper than the other one, so he got that one. Now well, I happened to have a green handle to it. Uh, he had a little tough time, I, he, he said, I had to hold it up to the, I don't know if you guys know, if you try to buy diesel, it will not fit in your gas tank, that's a mercy to many of us. Uh, but that didn't happen back then, and so he just gassed it up with diesel. Now he came home and he said, nothing's wrong. He, the car made it home and uh, not too long later, it didn't make it much further. Um, but he said, what did I do wrong? You told me to put fuel in it. I went and boom, we're talking about the same thing, right? Wrong, <laughs> wrong. Uh, that cast was created for a certain kind of fuel and to put something different in it meant it was eventually gonna break down. And of course it was a huge costly repair. We need to make sure that we mean the same thing as God means because he's our creator. He knows what we run on. He knows what we need. Our hearts need peace. It's a, it's a basic human need is peace. We need to make sure that what we mean is what he means so that when we read, he shall be their peace, we're talking about the same thing. We can do the same thing. We, what do we mean when we say peace? Often I think what we think is sort of psychological well-being. I have a sense of calm in my mind, in my soul. I have safety. Maybe you think, oh, I need some peace and quiet. You just mean I, I want the children to stop bickering, <laughs> something like that. But we're in danger, like I said, of using the same word to mean two different things. So let's, I just wanna make a couple observations from the passage here at the beginning about what peace means according to God, according to the Bible. First, peace means vertical peace with God. The first thing we have to learn is that peace, God primarily defines peace not in relationship to our circumstances, but in relationship to our relationship with him. We need vertical peace with God. Peace with God means knowing God as your shepherd. Look at verse four. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. I mentioned this is one of, one of God's favorite ways to express his relationship with his people. Shepherd and sheep. We, we probably think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I'll lack nothing. I, I have no want. Uh, I shall not want. He leads me into green pastures, into besides still waters. He restores my soul. It's the image. It's a very comprehensive image. It's the image of someone being cared for, protected, led, led to be nourished in every way. That's the kind of peace, and that's the prerequisite, really, for peace that we understand in the Bible. First, we have to understand the Bible assumes that peace first means peace with God, friendship with God, being shepherded by God. We also learn that, you know, it says here, he himself shall be their peace. That's, or sorry, he shall be their peace there in verse five, if you look. Vertical peace with God, and we could, I, we could spend the rest of our time on that one little phrase, he shall be their peace. When you say to someone who's 
circumstances are giving them everything except peace, to say he shall be their peace, to say peace will not be, not be found in your circumstances but will be found in a person. What you're saying is you can have peace with God, peace, real peace, that means regardless of your circumstances, you have peace. It means that the only way that you can lose your peace is if you lose him. It's unassailable peace. This is not the world's peace. That's what Jesus says that in John 14. He says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it do I give. My peace is different. The things, if this is true, and it is, he shall be their peace. God himself wants to be our peace. Not our circumstances, not, the, not our 401k balance, not uh, the relationship we have and we want to keep or we want to develop. Not any of those things or the vacation that's coming or the days off that are coming, not any of those things, to have peace with God, to have the peace that the Bible talks about is ultimate security. To know that the things that matter most to me can never be taken away. So often what we want is a change in our circumstances that will give us peace. But what God wants is to develop a heart of peace that will remain no matter what the circumstances are. Now, what, what the Israelites did then and what we're tempted to do today is to skip right over that. <laughs> skip to the consequences of what God could do for me, how he could change my circumstances, stop our war here, right? End our discipline, give us a sense of calm. God cares about all those things, by the way. But we must linger over this first point. We must let the creator define what peace truly is. Otherwise, we are at risk of finding ourselves pumping diesel into our minivans and we should not be surprised when we don't make it far down the street in life. So what is peace? Peace, according to the Bible, is first, it's God's gift of relationship with him, knowing him as the good shepherd that he is. It's his favor. It's knowing that he is in control and that he is directing and guiding you just as the shepherd directs and guides the sheep toward goodness, blessing, life, that the best things in your life can never be taken away from you regardless of your circumstances. That's what peace is. Now, why do we lack it? Why do we so often not have it? Why do we, why do we feel detached from that vision? Well, you remember Micah's audience, they're facing war, defeat, dislocation. They were expecting peace in a certain way, at a certain time. And what is God's response? He shall be their peace. Um, and you even see there in verse 3, I mean, the last thing that they wanted to hear was verse 3. And that's, to know, you have to know Micah to know why verse 3 is not what they wanted to hear. Therefore, he shall give them up. He shall give them up until the time. What time? <laughs> why don't you tell me? How long am I going to have to suffer? To say he shall give them up is to say the, the, the judgment is still coming. Exile is still coming. I'm still going to give you up into this discipline. You need it. He will give them up until the time when she was in labor and you get the shadowy description. It's, it's, it's outside of their control. They're going to have to suffer. There will be peace, but it's on the other side of suffering. And when is the other side of suffering? Until the time when she was in labor has given birth, which would have meant not much to them. It means a lot to us now, praise God. It was not just written for them, it's written to us too. But it didn't mean much to them now. What it is to say is there's going to be suffering. You can have peace in the midst of that suffering, but you may not know how long is it going to be. You may not always know what is the point. What am I doing here? Has any one of you felt that way? 
especially as you read, as you read the, through the whole book of Micah, the picture that emerges is of a people that lacked peace, not because God wasn't offering it, but because he wasn't offering it on their terms. They wanted peace from God that would meet their expectation. They wanted to write the check and just have God sign it. No questions asked. Peace didn't mean what the Bible means, which is life with God, which is uh, good, often despite our expectations, often despite our lack of comfort. They wanted a tidy little life as I desire, God making sure that I have as much comfort as possible. Well, instead of seeking God's will, aligning with what he wanted as their shepherd, well, inevitably, this must be your experience too. When we try to set our, the terms for what is good and what ought to happen, inevitably, our view is incredibly short-sighted and incredibly myopic. We do not see what God sees. Notice verse four, it says, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Go back to that. This is just this, this huge metaphor. It's this idea that God is the one who is directing his sheep. You know what's great about shepherds and why sheep need them? Well, one thing is they're tall. Sheep are short. Shepherds can see what's coming over the next hill like a lion. <laughs> and they can get rid of them. Uh, they know what's going on with the sheep. They, and if the, the sheep, by the way, if they trust the shepherd, they're going to have a good and abundant life. He will guide them into peace, into true peace. But you know what's the tough thing? The sheep have to trust the shepherd. They have to let him set the terms. Verse five, we see that word peace. He shall be their peace. That word peace, we might, like I said, it's easy to use the same word and mean different things. In the Bible, peace is one of these mega themes. It's the word shalom, the word shalom. And it has much more to do with simply, than simply a lack of war an end of war. When the Bible talks about peace, it's talking about something holistic. War, which is what the people in Micah's time had in mind, war, obvious, obvious corruption of God's peace, obvious corruption of what God wants. But the opposite of war is not peace, not exactly. War, or peace is the end of war, sure. But the opposite of war, what God is going for is harmony, restoration, God does not just want a ceasefire. He wants new creation. He wants recreation. Shalom, God's peace, is God bringing the world out of its craziness into divine sanity. It's God bringing the world back to what he intended for it to be in the first place. It's about God recreating the world that is broken down through suffering and sin. As God looked at the world in Micah's day and in our day today, what he saw was a broken down beater of a car rolling to a stop on the side of the road and he was not interested in getting under the hood just to get it to go the next few miles. What he was interested in was making it look like it had just rolled out of the factory. The people in Micah's day, their problem was get us two more miles down the field. Get us two more miles down the road. Just get us home. Get us to safety. But God was doing something much bigger. And he's doing the same thing with us today. God's peace, God's shalom is holistic. It's comprehensive. God's peace is his world put to rights, put back to how it's meant to be. Now, that does, it does mean psychological well-being. It does mean contentment. It does mean a lack of hostility. It means all those things, sure. But for us at the heart and in the trenches of everyday existence, it means knowing no matter what you're facing, 
that you are right where God has put you to bring about the shalom that he is producing. So often we're lacking peace because we're holding God to a promise that he never made. He promises to be our peace in the midst of his great rescue plan that we're part of here on earth to set the world to rights, indeed to end wars, to be part of all of those good things. But at many, to- at many times, in many places, it doesn't feel comfortable. That feels incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, it does not feel peaceful in the way that we normally think of peace. It doesn't bring about psychological well-being, uh, just this inner sense of calm all the time. No, but if we're drawing near to the good shepherd, we can have the internal peace that comes with knowing that we're right where we're meant to be. Think about it this way. Um, I haven't seen one of these in a while, but I used to really love just sort of in the summer, Hollywood tends to put out a bunch of these sort of big action movies that sort of have almost no plot and it's just kind of fun to watch them even if there's not much of a story. Uh, but I've watched you know, enough of these that I've noticed one of my favorite cliche things in that, which is where the, the hero has gone into sort of the enemy building, the bad guys building or wherever, the camp, and um, he got the memory stick or he turned off the thing, or he stole their code, or whatever it is, and he's did it, okay. But then, of course, the second that he does it, what happens? They've, they realize he's there. The alarm goes off, the computer thing blows up, or whatever, and now the bad guys are like, oh no, you know, Tom Cruise is gonna escape. Get him, okay? So, what happens? He's gotta figure out how to get out, but how's he gonna know? He's, he's not all that familiar with this building, but guess what, don't worry, because another Hollywood cliche, there's always this sort of nerdy guy out in the car, in the van, he's on his hacker laptop thing, doing lots of clearly fake thing, and he's hacked into the building mainframe, he has got the security cameras up, he can control all the locks, he can make fire extinguishers go off somehow, I don't know, he can just sort of do everything. And so what does Tom Cruise need to do, or whoever it is? He walks down the hall and the guy says, turn left, now, run. And Tom Cruise turns left and runs down the hall. It goes well for him. And then he comes up and goes, oh no. The guy in the van's like, there's enemies on your right. Go straight. Tom goes straight. He says, I'm gonna make the fire extinguisher go off. And he does, I don't know, he doesn't know how he does it. But he has sort of this omniscient sort of person in his ear saying, go left, go right, go straight, avoid danger this way. But isn't there always then, this this is the actual fun bit for me, is then there's always the little paradoxical moment where he comes to, okay, left, bad guys. Right, there's a bad guy. Straight, open and clear. And the guy in his ear says, don't go straight. You gotta go to the right. I know there's a bad guy there. You gotta go through him because that's how you'll get to safety. And what does he do? In the moment, he's like actually deliberating. Should I do it? And you're in the, sitting there in the, in the theater, right? And you're like, go right. Because you can see, you know, you're in the van and they see, uh, it looks like it's free and clear, doesn't it? But they're about to ambush him right on the other side. And if you go right, it's just one guy and then you're, that's the exit. And you're just, go right, come on. You could just do it, you know, do it. The guy in the van knows more than you know. You just trust him, that's the key. And if, if you're sitting in the theater going, come on, you, you know, bad word. Uh, come on, you silly guy. Just, just do what he says. God's knowledge of your life situations this week is how a billion ti- orders of magnitude greater than the guy in the van watching Tom Cruise try to escape from a silly building in a movie. 
There are moments where he will lead us toward what looks like danger. There are moments that when we look at them, we would say, that's, God, that's just the opposite of peace, isn't it? You're going to lead me toward that? If we trust him, like we expect our hero to trust the guy in the van, we'll trust that he knows. He'll ask me to go through what looks like the least peaceful situation of all because he has green pastures and still waters and goodness and blessing waiting for us on the other side. If we'll only trust him. If we'll only trust him. God has goals for your life that will require you to run toward what appears to be certain danger. God has goals for his world and for your neighbors that will require you to run toward what looks like pain and shame. God has bigger goals for you. God is, did you know God is saving the world through simple people like us? Through what Jesus has done at work in us, through the words we speak to the people around us, he is bringing shalom. He will one day bring it in its entirety. And he has a role for you to play today. Sometimes it will feel dangerous. Sometimes it will feel risky. But if we understand peace as God defines it, we will know that no matter what he calls us into, we will never be risking anything, truly. So why do we lack peace? The reason we lack peace is because we want to set the terms for peace in our lives. We want to evaluate the situation. We don't want to listen to the guy <laughs> in our ear and so forth. Uh, but God sees what, he can't see, what we can't see, so we need to trust him. So now we've understood what this peace is. It's life with God. It's him as our shepherd, knowing that he's in control. But now how, how can we actually trust him? Isn't that, I mean, I, I probably just set it up just so you can see. Isn't the problem there then? How can we know? <laughs> how can we know with certainty that when he leads us toward danger, when he leads us toward pain, for many of our Christian brothers around the world and in the past, leads us toward death, that there's life on the other side. All the way from that, all the way down to the kitchen, the dishes, the diapers, <laughs> the vacation, the 12-hour workday, whatever it is in between. How can we know that if we go toward the things that he has called us to, that he will be with us, that we will actually have the peace that he promises? Well, I'll spoil it right away. <laughs> we need to let this passage point us to Jesus, the one that it's talking about. Uh, in Matthew 2, the wicked King Herod has heard about the rumor of a, the king of the Jews coming, and he's terrified. And so he goes to the Israelite leaders of the day, and he says, hey, have you heard about this? And and they say, yes, we actually have. It's Micah talked about it 800 years ago. And they quote Micah 5 to him. They say it's in, oh, Bethlehem. They say it's in Bethlehem Ephathra. That's a hard one to say, isn't it? It means it's like saying Iowa City, Iowa. Ephathra is the state. It's in Bethlehem. So go to Bethlehem. Um, for you will come forth from me, one who will be ruler in Israel. Well, that terrified King Herod, right? Because he thought, I think I'm doing a good job being a ruler in Israel. And so he tries to, you know, hunt down Jesus and kill him. And so he has to flee in Egypt and all that. But we see Jesus, of course, he is born in Bethlehem. Just like this passage said he would be, 800 years before the fact. And he self-consciously fulfills every expectation that this prophecy lays out for him some 800 years before he was ever born. God in control. 
He was ancient. His birth was not the beginning of his life, but only his entrance into human history where he put on flesh and joined us as, as one of us. His, his life and mission does unite God's people. It does lead to restoration and shalom. And he did call himself the great shepherd. Do you remember? I am the good shepherd. If anyone would come in, he must come into the sheep fold that I am part of. And all that is great. Isn't that wonderful? It should give us great confidence. We should read this and go, wow. Somehow God knew what he was doing and he called forth Jesus at the time that he said, he called a shot, basically. But how does Jesus actually deliver the peace, the shalom that this passage predicts, that he himself shall be our peace? When he calls us into real suffering, how will we know in that moment that he will provide real peace right in the middle of it? Well, Jesus spent his whole life following God's will, enjoying peace with God and his vertical relationship with God, just like we mentioned. The, the source of peace, the source of true peace. And, and there was never a more peaceful person than Jesus. When you read the four gospels, what you see is a, a, a picture of a man who seemed just totally unflappable, didn't he? Whether there were people trying to push him off of a hill to kill him or um, he was debating with the great rulers of the day, it seemed like he could just never... He had some source of infinite calm and quiet in his soul that he just never seemed really all that frazzled. But then, on his last night on earth, something changed dramatically. Instead of Jesus composed and unassailable, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood, shaking and anxious. My soul is troubled unto death. Won't you pray with me a little while? He said to his followers. Instead of Jesus, peaceful and buoyant, on the cross we see Jesus in severe distress, crying out, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me in my suffering? Very thing we're afraid of, aren't we? And his question bounced off of the bronze heavens. No response, no peace for him. Why? Because on the cross, every bit of peace, every ounce of shalom was taken away from Jesus. He was consumed with darkness so that your peace can never be taken. On the cross, Jesus lost his father's favor. He lost his father's face so that when you face darkness, you can know that you never will. On the cross, Jesus suffered the penalty of our sin. He experienced all of the chaos and conflict that we deserve so that we can be confident in the midst of our suffering, the suffering that Jesus even calls us into, that God will never turn his back on us that he will continue to be the good shepherd, guiding and leading us from heaven, only toward the things that can never take away what matters the most. If we lack peace, of course, sometimes we lack peace because of suffering, that's not our fault. And sometimes we lack peace because of sin, that is our fault. But on the cross, Jesus has solved both of them in his very self. And it gets better. It gets better because Jesus did not stay in his grave. Jesus rose again by the power of God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, showing us that peace is available to us every day on the other side of suffering. Even if we follow Jesus into the kinds of suffering that he went into, we can be confident that he will be with us on the other side because, and this is the best news of all, he himself is our peace. God is not interested in simply ending the war between you and him giving you a blank slate and saying, great, I've wiped away your sins. Now try your best to be a good boy, good girl, so that I don't have to spank you again. Wrong. God 
has taken his perfect record of righteousness, his perfect vertical relationship with the Father, and wrote your name on the top, and then switched with you. On the cross, he suffered that. So that God doesn't simply have a ceasefire with you. He wants to have friendship with you. He doesn't want a ceasefire. He wants sons and daughters. That's the kind of peace that he has in mind. In doing so, God has signed his guarantee to the promise of Micah 5 through the cross of Christ that he himself is our peace. We can walk through life unafraid of what might come, knowing that if we are led by this omniscient king, guide, shepherd from heaven who is now leading us through his spirit only through the things that can never really touch us, we'll never really lose anything. But what we will gain is peace, peace, peace forevermore. Let's follow the shepherd king all the more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the kind and good shepherd king of Micah 5. That you stood and shepherded your flock. You, you continue to do so from heaven. You shepherd us as the good shepherd so that we can know that we shall dwell secure because of your greatness to the ends of the earth. Thank you, Lord, that you are our peace. Lord, forgive us. Just as, just as we were reminded, we so often look for peace on our terms, our way, with our timing. But you, God, grant us better peace, greater peace, because you are doing something great in our lives and in your world. Let us let you lead us, really. Let us trust you, the good shepherd, that you will only lead us toward the things that can never really touch us, that the best things can never really be taken, even when you lead us toward danger and pain. You are good. You are good. Help us to celebrate rightly this week the coming of Jesus, this, this wonderful shepherd king. Help us love you more. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.